The Big Wake Up by Mark Coggins is what you hope every private eye novel will be, says Edgar Award-winning author Megan Abbott. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 11. Walk Like an Egyptian. They were lying to you, of course, said Melina. She had called me 30 minutes after I left the Fairmont, and I had impulsively offered to take her to a Michelin-rated Italian restaurant near the bottom of Russian Hill. We had come back to my apartment to drink what was left of an overpriced bottle of Barolo that the unctuous guy with the silver ashtray around his neck assured me was the stuff to get. Up until this moment, we'd refrained from talking about the meeting with Rivero and Orlando. Molina hadn't wanted to ruin the dinner, and I didn't want to ruin my chances with her. Now that we were sitting oh so pleasantly close together on my scruffy couch, I decided to risk it. Yes, I said, but lying about what in particular? They do know Maximo. Who is he? She took a sip of the Barolo from the Flintstones glass I'd supplied and crinkled her eyes at me. They would not tell me. They did not even admit they knew him, but I could tell they did. Is it someone they know from Argentina? Almost certainly. What do they plan to do now? That is another thing they would not tell me. I am to get Araceli home. They will worry about everything else. Have you seen any of the other documentation on Maria? The death certificate, for instance? Molina had kept the beret from this morning, but had replaced the wool sweater and skirt with a flame-colored silk blouse and tight-fitting black pants. She set the Dino the Dinosaur glass down and crossed her legs. August, the dinner was very nice. The wine is working its magic. We are alone in your funny little apartment. Can you not think of some other thing to do than talk about my father? She had a point. I set my own glass down and leaned in to brush my lips against hers. That is better, she whispered. But do we need the light from the bowling thing? I jumped up to turn off the bowling pin lamp. I had already hit the overheads. So only the pale, glimmering light from the windows that faced Post and Hyde Streets bathed the room. I hurried back to the couch and Melina held out her arms. I just about did a swan dive onto her. We pressed against each other urgently and she put her fingers against my cheek and guided my mouth back to hers. She tasted of the Barolo and some truffly flavor of her own. The fingers of her other hand closed in my hair and the gallop of thoughts I'd been having about Rivero and Maria and Maximo faded. I only thought of being with her, and the pleasure of feeling her under me as her mouth opened, and I heard the murmuring, almost purring sound of satisfaction she made deep in her throat. We kissed like that for a long time, and then gradually moved to other things. Buttons were unbuttoned, shirts were pulled out, and soft places were explored. I was completely absorbed in her, and my universe was no larger than the couch. Nothing else mattered. Except it did. 
I was only dimly aware of the noise at first, and then I was convinced it had come from the street. There was a sharp bang, like an automobile hitting something, and then a cracking, peeling sound, perhaps like the auto wrenching over a wood fence. It was only when the apartment door flew open and the knob slammed into the wall that I understood that the sound carried implications for me and Melina. The overhead lights snapped on. I broke the clinch with Melina in time to see an athletic-looking black man come striding into the room with a pump-action shotgun trained on us. Melina started to scream, but something about the fierce, no-nonsense look on the man's face told me to reach over to cover her mouth before she could get a sound out. That's right, he said. Keep the bitch's mouth shut. He spoke with an accent, but what kind of accent I couldn't say. Despite his foreign sound, it was clear he was dressed to appear like a member of a special unit in the SFPD or some federal agency like the FBI. He wore a black jumpsuit with military boots and a black baseball cap. There were no official insignias or logos, but it wouldn't be hard to mistake him for a SWAT team member on a drug bust. He half turned his head and grunted something guttural and Arabic sounding over his shoulder. The barrel of another shotgun appeared in the doorway, followed by the arm and torso of another black man in the same getup. When he saw that we were well covered, he reached back outside to drag a stumpy, but vicious-looking metal battering ram across the threshold, then pushed the door closed, or as closed as a splinter doorframe would permit. The second man gave us another quick glance and keyed the talk button on a small radio clipped near his collar. He spoke something low and urgent into the receiver. There was a squawk of static, and I was just able to make out a feminine voice respond with an interrogative all of it sounding more and more like Arabic. The man on the walkie-talkie gave a short answer, waited for more from the woman, then turned his back on us and peered through the crack in the door. Melina was rigid and trembling beside me. The crown of her head mashed into my ear as I kept my arm pulled tight around her to reach her mouth. I'm going to take my hand away, Melina, I said quietly. Everything will be fine but please don't make any loud noises. She nodded, and I loosened my grip and uncoiled my arm from around her shoulder. The lower half of her face was red where I had clamped my paw, and she had gone ashen beneath her olive complexion. Her eyes betrayed fear, but they did not have the terrorized look of someone who's given in completely to panic. I am okay, she whispered. She looked down at her blouse, and we both realized at the same moment that the nipple of her left breast was exposed. She gasped and reached up to redo the buttons. Don't, said the man with the shotgun. I like the view. I swore and stood up from the couch, but he stepped forward and shoved the barrel of the pump action under my Adam's apple. Sit down and shut up, he said tightly. He'd made a mistake by getting so close and I thought of grabbing the barrel to wrestle the weapon away from him. But I was hesitant to risk it with Melina so near. It is all right, August, she said behind me. I go topless on the beach in Argentina. It means nothing. I stared into the eyes of the fake SWAT guy, and he smiled. She's right. I see the girls on the beach in Mar del Plata. 
He ground the muzzle of the gun into my throat. Believe me, a little nipple flashing will be the least of your worries, especially after ISIS arrives. I was vibrating with anger and shame. I felt like an idiot for letting them break in so easily, and now something less than a man for not being able to protect Melina. I lowered myself slowly back onto the couch and reached my arm around Melina again and pulled her close, squinching up the fabric of her blouse and covering her breast. The fake SWAT guy laughed at me and stepped back a pace. Despite the humiliation, there was one thing I found the tiniest bit reassuring in the exchange. He'd been to Argentina, and from the way he pronounced Mar del Plata, he was evidently comfortable with Spanish. It was a relief to realize that this incident, too, had to be connected to Rivero. Like many Americans, I'd been conditioned by 9-11 to think of Arabs as terrorists, and hearing the Arabic when they broke in had given me the willies. Although I didn't understand what the connection could be, somehow it seemed saner, more manageable, that it was related to Rivero's business. A moment later, the guy in the door yanked it open again, and in waltzed a woman, a supremely confident woman. She was tall and lanky with attractive, delicate features. Luxuriant hair was piled high on her head like a dark turban. She had a mocha complexion and dazzling white teeth, which she flashed enthusiastically as she caught sight of us. Her hip-hugging pantsuit fit like a superhero costume, emphasizing her shapely figure. There was a silver Egyptian ankh around her neck, and she carried a large leather purse or bag on her shoulder. Isis, apparently. The gunman, who had been monitoring the door, slammed it closed and came up to stand with her and the other fake SWAT team member. I hadn't been paying attention to the looks of the men until this point, but seeing them lined up with her, it was hard not to notice how handsome, athletic, and vibrant they all appeared. So, said the woman without a trace of accent, did you enjoy your dinner at Accarello's? My favorite is the asparagus tortellini with just a sprinkling of parmesan freshly grated over the top. But, then, you really can't get good parmesan outside of Italy, can you? Not even in San Francisco or Buenos Aires. Parmesan, I said. The funny-tasting salt? Kraft sells it in big cardboard shakers. Get it at the Smart and Final. Her bottomless black eyes ranged over my face, their pupils seeming to swell with anger. Passive-aggressive. You feel a loss of control, so you act the dolt. It's childish. I'm sorry. I didn't know tonight was my night for the Cheese Appreciation Club. Or did you drop by for something else? Still childish, and now you cover your fear with false bravado. I clenched my teeth and hissed through them. Then why don't you cut the amateur shrink stuff and tell me what the hell you want? Anger. At least that's an unaffected reaction. You know what I want, and believe me, you'll give it to me. She jerked her chin towards us and said to the first gunman, Ah, sir, please make sure they don't do anything foolish. I want to take a closer look. The Tsar nodded and stepped forward, training the shotgun right at a spot in the middle of Molina's forehead. She whimpered and tried to burrow further into the couch. I gave her arm what I hoped was a reassuring squeeze. The dark woman came up to me and bent low, staring into my face. Your nose has been broken several times. 
I'd reset that. Show me your teeth. I thought I noticed something earlier. What? I said. Your teeth. Grit them like before. I felt like a trained chimpanzee, but Asar had brought the shotgun even closer to Melina, so I peeled my lips back. Isis leaned in to tap my two front teeth with the tip of a perfectly manicured fingernail. These are implants and not very good ones. The color is a poor match and so are their shape. I would replace those. She took the tip of my chin between her two fingers and wagged my head from side to side. That scar at the corner of your mouth is bad. If it had been sutured properly, it would have been less prominent. It would have to be covered. I jerked my chin out of her hand. Covered for what? She laughed, but said nothing. She stepped over to stand in front of Molina, causing Asar to move to the side, where he ended up with a shotgun almost buried in Molina's right ear. Her lips trembled as Isis leaned into her. What are you doing? She pleaded. Isis responded in a squirt of Spanish, too fast for me to follow, except for the first bit, which was a command to shut up. She took Molina's chin in her fingers like she had done mine. Very nice bone structure and very nice skin. She tilted Molina's head up at an uncomfortable angle. Yes, I thought so. You've had some work done on your nose, but only an expert could spot it. She dropped Molina's chin and let her eyes run down her neckline. She grabbed at the fabric of her blouse and pulled it aside. Melina shrieked, and I reached over to take Isis by the wrist. I yanked her hand away, and she barked something in Arabic. The other gunman did a sort of skipping step forward and plunged the butt of his shotgun down at my head. I twisted to the side enough to avoid the blow to my brain pan, but caught part of it on my neck and shoulder. I hadn't let go of the dark woman. My momentum carried her almost to her knees, but that was all the advantage I got from the maneuver. She yelled, Stop this instant or you'll be wearing her brains. I released her wrist and slumped back onto the couch. The shotgun butt had hammered the point of my collarbone and a numbing pain was radiating all up and down the arm. Melina had begun weeping silently. Isis regained her equilibrium and reached over to Melina's blouse again and flipped it open contemptuously. It looks as if Mr. Reardon got to second base, at least. Very nice. She probed at Melina's breasts. And no work done here. I guess no one wants a top-heavy ballerina anyway. She stepped back. Button yourself up. I was seething and humiliated to the core. If I could have forfeited my life at that moment to snuff out all of theirs, I'd have taken the deal in a heartbeat. I pulled my right arm from around Melina and rubbed my left shoulder. Willing myself to think rationally, what is the point of this? I asked finally. The woman had opened her bag and taken out a tube of ointment or lotion. She rubbed it on the reddened portion of her wrist where I had gripped her, and a strange cloying odor filled the room. It's sort of an exercise, she said after she capped the tube and returned it to her bag. When I have an opportunity, I like to see how much work and craft would be necessary to prepare a body. You would need a lot. She would not. Prepare a body for what? Burial, of course. I felt Melina's hand clawing at my thigh and reached over to take it. I think I like talking about the cheese better, I said. You had your chance. Now tell us where she is. Where who is? We're running out of time and I'm not inclined to be patient. 
She rummaged in her bag for a hinged leather box, which she opened. Inside was a metal spoon with a rounded notch at the top. She lifted it out and held it in front of me. Do you know what this is? A melon spoon? You're going to regret you said that. It's a spoon, all right, but it's not for melons. It's called a nucleation spoon. It's used for removing eyeballs, for instance, when they are too damaged from trauma and need to be replaced with a prosthetic before burial. But it can also be used to remove perfectly good eyes while the subject is still living. If you don't tell me what I want, I'm going to remove each of your four eyes, starting with hers, until you do. I heard a little gasp at my side, and Melina slumped against me, passed out cold. Isis advanced on Melina with a spoon, which I could now see had a wicked edge ground into the notch. At least she will be unconscious in the beginning. Now what do you say? Shall I begin? I felt myself hyperventilating. I was nearly as lightheaded as Melina. No, that's enough. You're asking about Maria. You want to know where she's buried. She laughed. Yes, Maria, as you say. She's in Cypress Lawn Cemetery in Coma, in the Rose section. Her plot is right next to the statue of a weeping angel. And what name is on the headstone? Maria de Magistris. Bruno, the husband, used a fake name to purchase a plot, but he didn't use an alias for her. Her real name is also on the burial transfer permit. Isis looked at me thoughtfully while she tapped the bowl of the spoon in her palm. Bruno, who is Bruno? He is, or was, her husband. Rivero said Maria was estranged from the family, and that Bruno had buried her without his, Rivero's, knowledge. Are you saying that Rivero told you Maria was related to him? Yes, his sister. She laughed again and danced forward to slap the spoon down on my forehead with a crack. I knight you, Sir Chump. Do you mean to tell me that you don't know who Maria is? I pressed my palm to my forehead to rub the spot she had hit. I was told she was his sister. I was hired to find her grave. That's all I know. Isis pointed at Melina. And her? Who does she think Maria is? If you're telling me Rivero was lying about his relationship to Maria, she is as ignorant as me. My guess is the son, Orlando, knows more. Oh yes, Orlando certainly knows more. When did you give them the location of the grave? This afternoon. She looked past me to the corner of the room. We saw you come out of the Fairmont. She thought for a moment, then snapped her eyes back to me. You mentioned a permit. Did you keep a copy? I pointed towards the bedroom. There's a folder on the nightstand. It has another one. Isis looked over at the second gunman. You heard the man. Fetch. When he returned, she snatched the folder from him and opened it eagerly. After she had scanned both pages of the permit, she closed the folder and slipped it into her bag. Well, Reardon, we'll let you get back to your groping session, if you can recapture the mood. I'll give you a little advice, though. This is much bigger than you know. You are just a white chip in a very high-stakes game. I'm letting you live because you seem to have a knack for nosing through refuse. And I'm not sure you've found the brass ring for Rivero this time. Meaning what? Meaning I may come back to you. And if I do, I'll make it worth your while. 
ten times what Rivero paid you for a successful delivery, but if you report our visit to the authorities or interfere in my business, she held up the spoon again, this is only a small sample of the sort of misery I'll rain down on you, your ballerina friend there, and anyone else who is close to you. You can ask the Riveros, most particularly Orlando, if you don't believe me. She said the last bit about Orlando with a smile that chilled me to the core. Then she launched into a torrent of Arabic, and Asar and the other guy got busy. They yanked me off the couch and threw me onto the floor in my stomach, where they used two sets of plastic cuffs to bind my wrists and ankles together. They finished the job by using another set to loop the other cuffs together, effectively trussing me up like a Christmas butterball. Then they rolled Melina off the couch and gave her the same treatment. She stayed limp throughout the whole process, so if she had regained consciousness, she did a good job of play-acting. Reardon, I believe the master yogis call that the bow pose. It's supposed to improve spinal flexibility. She pressed her shoe into the small of my back. How's that? Swell. With much tromping and clanging, Asar and the other guy moved out of my line of vision, snagged the battering ram, and then went out the door. Isis remained behind with her foot in my back. Remember what I told you. Stay out of my business. There's an old Egyptian proverb that applies. Inserting yourself between the onion and its skin brings nothing but tears. She ground her heel into my back a final time, lifted her foot, and walked towards the door. There's an American proverb that may apply too, I said to her retreating feet. Don't tread on me. The door slam closed, and I doubted she'd even heard me. You have been listening to The Big Wake Up, a book Publishers Weekly described as outstanding in a starred review. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Hoggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markhoggins.com.